Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 153, recorded on February 16th. The Cloud Pod gets the CloudFormation stage hook. Good evening, Ryan and Jonathan. Hello, hello. Hey, Justin. Hey. Hello, hello. We're uh, one more week without Peter, and then he's back next week. So uh, if you're here for, for, just for Peter... You're stuck with sorry. us. Yeah, <laughs> It's just the three of us. <laughs> stuck with us forever. Well, we have uh, some interesting news this week to talk about once again. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's only Wednesday, and I really do wish it was Friday. <laughs> That's all I have to say about this week so far. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as always, the cloud, the cloud continues to be cloudy. Uh, and all its great things. So, first up, let's talk about F5. Uh, not the first company I think about when it comes to cloud, uh, but I do think about big red boxes in my data center. F5 is announcing a new distributed cloud WAP. Not that WAP, not the song. <laughs> Everyone out of the dirt. Nice. Web application and API protection offering. <laughs> the web application and API offering, known as WAP, uh, <laughs> combines capabilities of F from F5 solutions for web app firewall and distributed denial of service protection with API security from their recent Voltaire acquisition and bot protection from their acquisition of Shape Security. Uh, Francois, uh, Francois Lecou-Denou says that it's basically a bundled stack of all things you need to secure an application. For a lot of CIOs, securing the front door of the application is the number one issue. Uh, of course, one of the advantages of this offering is that this is a SaaS cloud service that you can get uh, subscribed to from F5, and that enables you to use the same uh, WAP <laughs> across all of your cloud providers, including AWS, GCP, uh, Google, and or even Oracle. Hey, you know, you can get into that, get into the game with them as well. Uh, so, if you like a single uh, front door control panel to manage all of your DDoS and needs, uh, this is not a bad solution if you don't like the native built-in cloud services. I wonder if this is a, a sort of a play into the Akamai territory, really, because once once they have this type of device available as a cloud service, they could very easily deploy this all over the world. They could very easily have edge caching and all kinds of things. They could they could really sort of um, take a chunk out of the CDN market. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you you think about the you know the edge story we have nowadays. I assume that they're I, I would assume that F5 is using cloud providers to partner with on this because it wouldn't make sense for them to build out their own. Access points, but if they if they bought something like Cloudflare or bought some some other CDN company, maybe that does get interesting. I hadn't really thought about that from that perspective. Yeah, I I think it's going to be tough for them in a lot of use cases because of the sort of the, the deep integration with other services. You know, think about Amazon ALBs; they're they're aware of the instances which are up and down and the monitoring that goes into those behind the scenes. And so to to have this kind of front door on services for either one one cloud or multi-cloud deployments of their applications, I think you're still going to have to deploy those cloud-native uh, load-balancing services as well just to take care of managing the, the pool of resources behind that. So it's it's going to be a tough sell, I think, for a lot of people when when they could use something like DNS round robin or, or something else to get this this global traffic to different cloud providers or routing, for example. So it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be a, a tough sell. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. Yeah. I think it's capitalizing on existing relationships, right? If you're, you know, a, a hybrid solution in in multiple places, and you already have a relationship with F5, you already have F5 as your data center, you already, maybe you already have the management tier, you can leverage this and then add the security layer on top of it. And, and you know, I think it's a symptom of uh, what you see a lot of companies do is trying to figure out their identity in the cloud space when they've been in the data center for so long. Yeah, it's funny because I, when I when I think of cloud, I, I I don't think of private cloud. Private cloud to me is a data center. I don't call it the cloud, regardless of 
what VMware or, or HP or anybody else has to say. And so, so when they say multi-cloud, you're right. You're absolutely right. It is, it's, a, it's a hybrid model. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you know, if Akamai for a long time has had Kona, which is kind of their WAF solution in the cloud as well. So this, you know, there's a couple of things that are interesting with this. One is that it gets them into a SaaS subscription kind of model, which they were already starting to do with some of the cloud control panel stuff they were doing for Nginx. Um, and this is kind of the next kind of evolution of that. So, you know, as all hardware vendors <laughs> kind of have to figure out, either they become somehow a partner of the cloud, like NetApp, or they have to, you know, d- pivot into SaaS businesses or service businesses that they can provide as a ser- their capabilities of service. And this is what F5 is kind of taking this route instead. So it's an interesting choice. And I think I think it's the right choice for F5 personally. Um, I don't know how they, the partnership with the cloud providers that make sense when all of them have native load balancer technology that's integrated into their platforms. Um, so, I, you know, I think it, overall it's a good choice. It's just a matter of, you know, does the market feel that way as well? I'm sure there's an awful lot of people who are using F5 and data centers today with enormously complex TCL configurations. And they're thinking, we really want to move this to the cloud, but how do we re-engineer all this stuff? How do we re-implement all this business logic uh, on the native services? I know it's something that's, that's sort of across my desk in the past. And so if they can still support the full feature set that they used to support, on-prem, then this is potentially a, a good move. I mean, I think the reality is that most of these people who are data center people are trying to figure that out, they just deploy a virtual F5 into their cloud, call it a day, <laughs> which is terrible as well. Uh, I mean, it's not, it works for some ways, but uh, it, it definitely, I don't get the impression that a lot of people who have a very complicated F5 don't just go to the default of, well, I'll just buy an F5 in the cloud, call it good. Oh, I've got to look down and see uh, uh, F5 deploying their, their appliances in multiple clouds for redundancy. It's like turtles all the way down. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Interesting. You know, we talked about um, Cloudflare a while ago uh, and how they were adding edge compute. And we thought that was an interesting pivot for Cloudflare, you know, to compete with, cl- you know, with uh, cloud, everyone else's edge solutions on AWS and GCP, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, there was an announcement yesterday that Akamai, is going to acquire Linode for $900 million. Now, this article says <laughs> Linode is a competitor of AWS. Uh, but, you know, they they bought, they were bought for $900 million. You know, let's just assume that this is standard terms. Like, you know, typically it's a three, three, time, uh, three to four times multiple of your revenue. So that's what, maybe 150 to $250 million in revenue. Uh, you know, I don't know that I would call that a competitor against $71 billion. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whatever, you know. Well, they did call out AWS specifically in some of their press releases about this. So they do see this as something trying to bring compute capability to Akamai. Uh, the goal of the acquisition is to provide developers the distributed platform for building, running, and securing next-generation applications, which of course would be edge applications. And Linode says there's no question that AWS is the big kahuna in the cloud. If you're an enterprise and need the ability to customize your infrastructure, AWS is a good fit. But if you are a small business owner or an independent developer, having access to all of that advanced cloud technology comes at a cost. Unnecessary complexity, risk of lock-in to Amazon's ecosystem, and frequent billing surprises. Uh, so, you know, uh, this this to me feels like Akamai saw what Cloudflare was doing. It was going like, we need to get us some of that. And this is a way we can get a lot of large-scale infrastructure expertise in our company and data centers and things like that from Linode. And we can get it for a pretty relatively low price. And, you know, do we continue to offer the VPS solution long-term? Maybe, if it leads to Akamai revenue. But also, we get all this compute capacity, so we just kick those customers off someday. Who knows? We'll see what happens long term, but uh, mm-hmm. they do expect this to close in the summer, so about August time frame. Interesting. Com- comparing the revenues is uh, is interesting because uh, I think uh, Linode's annual revenue is about 
one day worth of AWS revenue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I read the article and I was like, competitor. And so I went and started just playing around in their services on their product pages and stuff just to see what they were, just because I completely misunderstood, I think, Linode's business model from, I guess, advertisements that I've, you know, I've seen. I, I thought they were much more of a, like a, a hosting agency, not so much as a, uh, you know, provide your own API driven infrastructure, but they do, they do have quite a bit of that, but it is, that's it, right? Like it's, they will host your site or they will let, give you a server, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it says it, but there's, you know, there's a market for it, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, they were definitely a VPS first, right? Focusing mm-hmm. on, you know, WordPress and, and different things like that. And they, they kind of expanded just like digital ocean did to, you know, provide a development environment that doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. It's really kind of the play that both digital ocean and Linode have is, you know, you don't need to go use AWS for your dev stuff. Just use us, and we're just as good as they are for what you want to do. And, and Linode has Terraform providers. They've got, you know, all the all the standard bells and whistles that you would want in an infrastructure driven uh, thing. So it's definitely, um, you know, interesting. I, I'm am really curious to see what Akamai does because Akamai is not a small medium business company. They are an enterprise company. <laughs> they sell to enterprises, and so mm-hmm. you know they're going to have. They bought this for something. And again, I think it's to be competitive with Cloudflare's edge compute stuff. But yeah, what does that mean for Linode's legacy business? I mean, I, I'm sure they're not going to just throw it away because they just paid $900 million for it. <laughs> and that would be a big write-off on their business. But um, I wonder if it becomes as much of a priority as it is today or not. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for the advertisement now. You know, no no concerns of locking with Linode. They only have two services. There's nothing to get locked into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if I was a Linode customer, I maybe. I may be taking a hard look at DigitalOcean <laughs> right now just to, to mm-hmm. be careful. So, All right, let's move on to AWS. Uh, and they have announced the general availability of AWS CloudFormation Hooks, a feature that allows customers to invoke custom logic to automate actions or inspect resource configurations prior to creating, updating, or deleting CloudFormation stack operations. AWS CloudFormation Hooks will allow customers to validate resource properties and send a warning or prevent the provisioning operation for non-compliant resources to reduce security and compliance risk, lower operational overhead, and optimize your costs. Uh, prior to this, you had to write all kinds of custom Terraform code or CloudFormation logic and controls, and enforcement mechanisms were not really great. Uh, so this now allows you to publish your policies, and CloudFormation Hooks will now validate those policies via the CloudFormation registry and enforce them. So uh, this is now the prevent side of uh, infrastructure's code. So, which everyone else has sort of had for a little bit now. Well, I, I'm glad to see it here too. Yeah. I'm happy to see, like in this announcement, that they talk about the warnings because really the prevention is is one thing, but uh, really you have to complete the, the the feedback cycle for someone who's deploying something that's out of compliance, right? And so if you don't have that ability to sort of discover that by you know executing your own CloudFormation stack and then getting a warning saying, hey, you're using the wrong SSL cipher or you know, this isn't one of the, you know, the standard instance types that we allow. You know, how do you get that that feedback in there? So you can block it or you can remediate it after the fact. But um, I like that this is uh, in line in front of the developer and not buried behind the behind the scenes. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of use cases, really. Thinking about things that we do today for our accounts, we 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 let people deploy. Uh, load balancing, for example, into their accounts, and we retroactively go back with another tool and, and make sure that logging is planned in the way it's supposed to be, and that the policies, mm-hmm. the, the you know the TLS um, policy is is where it's supposed to be. With something like this, now we could we could discard that tool and we set a policy um, as a hook that either 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 adds the configuration or inf- or rejects it if the configuration is in presence. So we sort of 
um, it's sort of a, a bit of attrition that, that all the other tooling we used to have to do to make the platform um, a success for our for our customers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't even discard the old tool. I just have a belt and suspenders sort of, you know, method to it. So it's you want to prevent and you want to educate people that are using these things into your policies and the way you want it. But then you also sort of want that big hammer on the back end that makes sure that you're you know communicating in a modern protocol and safe. Very nice. I like these kinds of. Um, these kinds of announcements and it's, you know, the, the way they've implemented this, it's very extensible. Yeah. Like you can build your own, you can have, yep. you, you know, you can build your own hooks and publish it to the registry and those hooks can do, you know, pretty much anything you want. Well, if we had marketplace for CloudFormation, we could registry, we could then, you know, sell our pre-built ones. <laughs> so <laughs> we can make, we can make ones and then sell them. Yeah. Like. Both Jar and Python support, I think is, is what they, what they announced, which is kind yeah. of neat. Mm-hmm. I have to mention um, Terraform Enterprise Sentinel. This is probably a pain point that many people using CloudFormation and wanting to use the native cloud services felt is that this was a huge gap in the in the um, security compliance model. So yeah, it's a, you know an, another another box check. I mean, you, you still have to do CloudFormation, so I mean, there's that negativity to it. But yeah, other than that, you're mm-hmm. right, Jonathan. It's great. <laughs> I've got past that now. They've made, I, I, they made rollbacks faster, right now. Like it's not so you know. I, have that one typo and it deploys, you know, all my stuff. And then I hits the typo and like the t- last to, you know, final step and then blows up and rolls all the thing back. Yeah. You know, those are good times. I, I don't miss those at all. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, after, after years of therapy, which I'm still waiting for reimbursement for. Thanks, Justin. I, I did get over the, the cloud formation hate. <laughs> uh, well, if you, uh, you have developers that you maybe don't like, uh, and you want to prevent them from, you know, creating OWASP uh, cross-site scripting? The Code Guru, Guru Reviewer uh, now is adding a couple of new features for you. Uh, so of course, it still only supports Java and Python. Uh, I suspect we'll get a new language by the time we get to reInvent. Uh, you know, and then they added secrets, scanning, and reInvent. So th- you know, those are the three things you had before. And now you get a new detector library, which describes in detail the detectors that Code Guru Reviewer uses when looking for a possible defect, and includes code samples for both Java and Python. So when the developer says this is bull, this finding, you can now give them how the detector detected it, and they can argue with Amazon about it instead, which I much prefer, because I don't want to argue with them about if the tool's right mm-hmm. or not, but I argue with Amazon, who's smarter than I am, so that's perfect. <laughs> and then the other one is a new security detector for detecting log injection flaws in Java and Python code, which is a direct reaction to log4j, <laughs> and so if you're using CodeGuru Reviewer and you're using libraries and things that you're not sure if they're vulnerable or not, uh, CodeGuru Reviewer will tell you that uh, you have bad log4j. Uh, configurations in your code somewhere, which uh, is nice. Uh, I wish they'd had it back in December, uh, but you know, February is fine when no one cares about Log4j anymore, right? No one cares about that anymore. Is that is that where we're at now? Yes. Yeah. Now, now the world has patched billions of servers. Now they're all in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it sneaks in though, because it's like you know, you add another library to your application that you don't think, and then all of a sudden it has a Log4j vulnerability that you didn't know about. And you're like, oh, <laughs> it, it does. It does come in more often than you realize because there's so many. So many integrations of Log4j and so much Java code out there that it just it, it can sneak in quickly in a jar file without you even knowing. But yeah, absolutely. I've seen it pop up several times since, and it is kind of interesting. I, I think it is a little. I, I would be curious to see how they're actually detecting this because I think it's there's so many ways to mitigate a lot of these things at this point too, where it's um, these things can be very hard to sort of like. There's the risk that's actually out there, but it's detecting the risk, and so. Just being able to call, you know, the remote executable isn't necessarily everything. So I don't know. It's it would be interesting to see. So 
and I, you know, I take offense, you know, some developers, you know, like, you know, you're talking about me, Justin. <laughs> it's rude. <laughs> Only when you write Python code, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I think what they're actually detecting in this is, is um, taking un- untrusted input from a, a particular source and logging it directly to the logger without doing any kind of matching or mm. escaping of data and things like that. So it's not that they're looking for a vulnerability in the in the, the library as such as what you're doing with the data before you send it to the logger. Uh, okay, then then I that's awesome because that's exactly the type of stuff of how this gets executed if you're... Yep, and I, I'm sure they do the same thing for... Uh, it's probably a copy and paste job from a, from a different search for the for the same type of thing whether it's passwords or sql injection or anything else yeah. of the same type where you, where you accidentally trust your damn users to to, to do yeah. the right thing yeah. <laughs> don't do that Never trust users yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well for those of you who uh, use efs you're either in one of two camps either you're in the i run an hpc workload and i wanted shared low latency storage for my my hpc workload or you're like all the rest of us who were like hey it's shared nfs we want that and we all adopted it and then found out that it wasn't so great for that. So for the last you know year or so, they've been fixing the gap on EFS to give us actual NFS performance we want for servers uh, to kind of meet both needs. But this this announcement is definitely in the HVC uh, land, in my opinion, as they're now giving you improved performance for your latency-sensitive workloads that they can now run twice as fast as before. With EFS latency read operations, both data and the metadata uh, we're typically in the low single-digit milliseconds. Effective day, new and existing EFS file systems now provide average latency as low as 600 milliseconds for the majority of read operations on data and metadata. And this performance boost applies to one zone and standard general-purpose EFS file systems. Requir- so that doesn't mean you have to pay for the expensive stuff either, which is even nicer. Mm. I mean, that's a nice announcement that they're just adding it to the existing service. I like that one improvements. Yeah. I, I assume this must be backed with, with something like... A- very fast SSDs in in one availability zone. Sure, yeah. So you know it can't. Does it say is, is it possible to use multiple AZs or is it limited to this type of performance for a single AZ? Because latency between more than one AZ would be uh, pretty problematic for file locking and things. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't get that far through the article to see. That. I don't see anything mentioned as I'm just scanning it real quickly here. But uh, you know, I, I don't think it's multi-region at this point, so it doesn't support some of those new replication features and some of those. Because again, you had to replicate the data before you can provide it at a high capacity. But you know, there are enough uh, Rube Goldberg type uh, machinations yeah. on EFS now between copying and things like that that you could probably come up with a way to do it. It just might take you a little. There'll be, actually, there'll be an Amazon. There'll be an Amazon Solutions white paper that has like 400 Amazon services to make this simple use case work. So it'll be fine. I thought you could only talk to EFS within your local region. While you can de- deploy a, a volume in multiple regions, your communication's all all local. I thought, and so like all that. Oh, I think the other region is read, if I recall. It's it's only read in another region. Um, but you know, they have added new features. Can you hit it though? Because I thought DNS trickery. I thought would only return to your local region. You know, it's been a while since I've tried to do that, so I'm going to defer to the listeners who can write in and tell us what to do there. But I, <laughs> my EFS, my EFS yeah. use case is so simple that I don't even think about. It. I, like, this, I'm going to benefit from this, and I'm not even going to care. <laughs> like, <laughs> the CloudPod website might be slightly faster today because of this. I actually don't know. I haven't tried because it uses an EFS-backed yeah. container. So you know, I don't know. Nice. <laughs> All right, Amazon has new C6A instances. Uh, for those of you playing at home, this is not an Intel or a 
Graviton. This is an AMD strip powered by the third generation AMD Epic processors for compute intensive workloads. The new EC2 C6A instance are now available, providing up to 15% improvement in price performance versus the C5A instances and 10% lower than comparable x86 based instances. Uh, C6A instances provide a 15% improvement in compute price performance, up to 40 gigabytes of EBS throughput and 50 gigabytes per second of network bandwidth. And the C6A also supports always on memory encryption with AMD transparent single key memory encryption and supports the new AVX2 instructions for accelerated encryption and decryption algorithms all available to you today. I just can't wow you with epic chips, can I? Woo! <laughs> Woo! That's epic. <laughs> Don't just look at those those bandwidths though for EBS. Uh, well, then for the listeners, I'm sorry to tell you there's another epic story later in the show and the, the my co-host will be just as excited for that and that's when it's well, I'm sure. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Don't, don't, seriously, don't don't you always wonder what when you look at the, the network bandwidth for for EBS versus networking? Once for, EBS is forty gigabits, rest of network is fifty gigabits. That tells me there's you know there's a hundred gig or two fifty gig, whatever. I don't know <laughs> what, what, what what happens to the other ten. Like what are they doing with the other ten? Yeah. Why is it why why isn't it fifty for both? <laughs> and and I've, I go down this this path of trying to figure out well are they using the other ten to like pre cache things that they expect you to hit next? Like is, is there some magic in the system there that makes it so? so low latency because they're, they're using that bandwidth for, for some other purpose. Like, I want other details. I like knowing how it's made. If I were to reverse engineer this with logic, which has no bearing on the technical implementation of this, the EBS is, thr- is fronted through the Nitro card. Uh, so I suspect that because most instance types are shared on a server that you cannot get, there's probably you know, a very thick pipe into a, a Nitro card. Uh, but that has to be shared across other VMs. And if you were to look at the VM sizes and shapes that actually get the 50 gigabits per second, because it's not the small ones, that there's only probably two to four that would fit onto a bare metal C6A. And that you could probably logic that that means that there's probably a two or 300 gigabit per second card in the Nitro that handles EBS connectivity. And that is why it's limited at 50 or 40. That's my guess. And then the, EB, the, the network connectivity is via an attachment of a virtual... Nick to the kernel, I think, or into the into the nitro as well. But those are dedicated to the instance, and that is why you get more throughput. That's my guess. If I were to logic my way through this with no technical understanding of how any of the cloud works, that's my guess. All right, I don't have a better guess. So. Just speculation. My guess is a project guy or a product guy with his finger in the wind, going, "Yeah, we could probably meet that SLA," and that's it. That's. <laughs> Well, the reality is you probably can't get it anyways, even if you tried, because <laughs> you, you had to have like some super highly mm-hmm. optimized network IO pathing and data layout of the data to actually get to that level. Because it's in some like super, like those, anytime they, they get those numbers, I'm always like a little skeptical. I'm like, yeah, is that the real world number I'm going to get? Because so much, so much complexity in those things. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, again, we're going to talk about WAF again. Well. It was WAF earlier. Now it's back to WAF. Uh, with the AWS WAF introducing AWS WAF fraud control for your account takeover prevention for protecting your login page against credential stuffing attacks. Uh, stuffing attacks are where brute force attempts and other anomalous login activities are detected uh, against your login page, and the account takeover prevention enables you to proactively stop account takeover attempts at the network edge. Account takeover prevention is offered through the AWS managed rules, and once added to your AWS WAF web ACL, it compares usernames and passwords submitted to your application to credentials that have been compromised elsewhere on the web. It also monitors for anomalous login attempts coming from bad actors by correlating requests seen over time to detect and mitigate attacks like irregular login patterns 
brute force attempts, and credential stuffing. I do have to say, is this is this the AWS account page? Why do I have to secure my own AWS account page? Or, or is this like this one's a little weird for me? And I, if this is the AWS account login page, no. why would I want this? No, this is a this is your this is it's a WAP feature. This is you you've tied WAP to your af- application, ah. so you've this is your login account. So I I am yeah. So this is someone trying to break into the cloud the into cloud my, pod. into the login page of CloudPod. Okay, well that that makes more sense to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the complexities of login pages though. That's there's a lot there, <laughs> so that's impressive that they can do that. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're they're probably capitalizing on a lot of you know standard uh, HTTP request libraries and looking at patterns. Like you know this this smells a lot of you know machine learning and pattern recognition that they're they've applied there. And so if you get a, a bunch of coverage on on those libraries, you could probably make a pretty good guess mm-hmm. at what's going on. I also have an optional JavaScript. Oh, sorry. Yeah, in fact, they they talk about coverage of of the libraries. They talk about um, the SDKs they offer for JavaScript and um, for Android. I expect they'll offer the same type of thing for what Apple use. I forget what it is now. For iPhones, programming language. Swift, Swift. Yes, yeah. So I, I expect they'll offer the same the same type of uh, libraries for, for for Swift as well in the future. But the, the idea being that they're now collecting live metrics from your users as they try and log in to correlate with um, with other. Uh, p- potentially false login attempts, so you can you can differentiate between somebody who actually typed the password in incorrectly and then got it right the next the next try versus somebody who's repeatedly deliberately going through a dictionary attack or something else. So it's it's kind of neat that they're sort of closing that loop really back to the back to the user. I I'm going to turn this on on the, the cloud pod later because we get not a lot of stuffing attempts, but you know people try to get potentially to do that. So why not? Let's give it a shot. <laughs> we we killed all the bots to our website with WAF, so it worked out really well for the bots. Maybe it worked out for the stuffing too. Yeah. I think I think WordPress is just a huge target shh, for shh, anybody who runs it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so easy, Jonathan. It's so easy. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. It's 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 like it's like any of these any SaaS service, whether it's you know the the Atlassian products or I mean, WordPress, any any popular product which gets deployed by millions of people is such a huge yeah. risk factor, I think, in my mind, because as soon as the vulnerability is there, that's an awful lot of people who have to patch immediately and have to be aware of the need to do it and have the ability to do it, who didn't contract somebody like Justin or Ryan mm-hmm. to, to come along and do some work for them and, and don't really know how it works under the hood. So, yeah, it's um, it, it's it's a, it's great to see a, a protection like this for people like that who mm-hmm. ne- wouldn't necessarily be able to respond quickly enough. <laughs> Speaking of protecting Atlassian workloads, like I turned on WAF and I was like, "Oh, this isn't you know that visible." Oh no, just in passive mode. Like the amount of hits I got for for various things, I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, this is very much out there." <laughs> I mean, people they, people will find it and they will try. Yeah, I mean, if you ever take a laptop and that has no security patches on it, and you just put it on a network. <laughs> you know, it's on the it's publicly exposed to the internet. It'll be hacked within minutes. <laughs> like it's it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how bad it is actually out there, and and you know it, this is why we always talk about you know when you get hacked, not if you get hacked. Mm-hmm. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since two thousand eight, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, 
visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right. Well, the AWS Billing Console has a new shiny look. Uh, the new homepage experience provides an at-a-glance view of your AWS charges. The AWS Billing Console allows you to easily understand your AWS spend, view and pay invoices, manage billing preferences and tax settings, and access additional cloud financial management services. Uh, the Billing Console homepage helps finance, DevOps, or FinOps users quickly understand AWS spend and identify top drivers. And this is actually a uh, console update that I don't hate completely. I mean, I don't like change first, so I hate it a little bit, but it's actually pretty good. <laughs> I, will, I will grow to like it. I've got a little FOMO. I, I logged into two different accounts over the past few days, and I, I saw that the Cost Explorer link had moved from where I usually found it sort of halfway down the page to up to the top of the page. I was like, oh, there's a new, there's a new thing. I didn't notice any huge differences. I mean, it's really the new dashboard. Like, it gives you... Top, oh, I wonder if maybe that's... It gives you top cost drivers. It gives you... Um, you know, top spend by region. I mean, things that don't really work in a, a very large, like, multi-AWS account model <laughs> for you. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't look at a large organizational billing centralized console to see what that one looked like. But you know, overall, I I think it's, it, it answers some very quick questions like, what's my biggest cost? It gives you your top five costs really quickly. It compares your costs for the last five days to show you which costs were higher. Um, so, like, I saw, you know, three days ago, my I one cost spike up, and I was able to see right there. Oh, it's because of my DNS, my DNS uh, names renewed, and so you know, they, I have like four or five that renew on the same day, and so I had a big charge that day. Yeah, you know, so there, there's definitely a lot of, um, you know, just quick advantages to it. Where before I had to go dig into Cost Explorer and go figure that out, and like it would take a couple extra steps. So I do appreciate it's it's a little simpler, and anything that makes costing management simpler or quicker, I think, is a plus for many companies. So, so if if the network is monitored by the NOC, is finance monitored by the? <laughs> <laughs> That's just what you say when you get the bill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Those those FOC dashboards. Yeah. So as a as a member of the of the FinOps Foundation, I think you should put you should admit that as an official term of you know your cost management uh, monitoring That's team. Pr- That's pretty good. Yeah. That's, a- That's pretty good. <laughs> that would make a funny T-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd buy that shirt. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll maybe work that out for reinvent T-shirts. Uh, we haven't done any merch in a while yet. Yeah, maybe we'll work that out. <laughs> maybe, yeah, we, we need to we need to contract some uh, some artists to, to to sort of prototype out some shirts. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. gonna be funny. Yeah. <laughs> if you're an artist who's listening to the show and you want to make make a shirt, uh, please contact Jonathan at theclapbot.net. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then our final AWS announcement: uh, Migration Hub Refactor Spaces uh, is now generally available which is a new starting point for incremental app refactoring and help fast-track your refactoring efforts. Using Refactor Spaces, customers focus on refactoring their applications and not the creation and management of the underlying infrastructure that makes refactoring possible. Refactor Spaces orchestrates AWS services across multiple accounts to create a refactor environment for incrementally evolving an application that helps customers realize their value earlier. Migration of Refactor Spaces simplifies refactoring by providing the following. Reducing the time to set up the factoring environment. Reduce the complexity of refactoring monoliths by iteratively extracting capabilities as new microservices and rewriting traffic from old to new using the Strangler FIG pattern. Uh, simplifying the management of existing apps and microservices as a single application with flexible routing control, isolation, and centralized management, and helping dev teams achieve and accelerate tech and deployment independence by simplifying development, management, and operations while apps are changing. This is one of those things where I wish I knew how it worked because this sounds 
very cool, but it also like I'm suspicious of it somehow because most of the migrations, especially the successful ones, like refactoring happened in two ways. One was a complete rewrite or the other one was, you know, sort of moving stuff over and then sort of over time slowly addressing it. And and so I definitely see the need to create a tool like this, but I'm also sort of very skeptical of it providing functional value past a POC. So, I mean, it's part of the migration hub, right? And it's, I, it, it comes from this migration angle, but there is, you know, if you think about you know, a set of microservices and the routing logic that you put into all those things, there's a lot of like a metadata console of your microservices architecture to kind of know where I think next to and a kind of visual layer. It's kind of providing you some of that logic. And then they're doing some of the heavy lifting of routing traffic to the different modules, different components as you go. Like, I agree with you. I think it doesn't get very deep very quickly. It's sort of like using database migration service. Like everyone talks about it, but no one actually does it. Um, <laughs> because it doesn't actually work as well as they say it does. I think it's sort of the same other thing, but um, there is a use case where you know having this very simple routing services layer logic is actually a really cool feature. And why it's hidden into the migration hub, I don't fully understand, because I'm like, just make that available as a service that I can use if I'm refactoring or not refactoring, because you know being able to quickly and dynamically route things around and change things in my configuration at, a, at this level would be super nice. Yeah, it's rudimentary tracing without instrumenting your code, mm-hmm. right? Like that's so. Like there's there seems to be like that would be a huge value um, just for the visualization of that alone. I, I think in reality, people would deploy hybrid models of legacy bloatware and microservices as they implement them because the, the whole point of strangler the strangler fig. If you ever seen one of those trees, Google it. They're awesome looking trees. Um, they have all these tentacles that kind of drop down and I don't know, like, like something from a horror movie. Huh. Anyway. <laughs> Never actually thought about where that came from. Now I have to look at it. Yeah. But the, but the, the, the process of, of the strangler fig is that, is that you sort of, you put a, a facade in front of the incoming traffic to your application, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a, a request routing layer. And then to begin with, everything goes to the legacy app. And then slowly as you break out little pieces of functionality into their own microservices, you adjust the routing layer so that you start forwarding the traffic to those microservices. So you can incrementally break out these um, uh, these, these, these huge applications into smaller and smaller components until you, you don't need the facade, or the facade just becomes, you know, your DNS or an ALB or some other some other way of getting the traffic to the service that it needs to get to. And so it's 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 a really good enablement for um, for people who are staring at a massive application that's 20 years old thinking, how on earth am I going to even start working on this process? Yeah. I'm just kind of putting the facade. That is where all migrations start. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot of work. That's how it starts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. What did I sign up for? Yeah. Right. <laughs> all right. Let's move on to GCP. Uh, an exciting feature for Vertex AI if you're into ML AI, which none of us are, so we'll try our best. Uh, they're offering you two new features, a new local mode to help you speed up your debugging process, and auto-container packaging to simplify your job submissions. Uh, so debugging in a MLAI is apparently an inherently repetitive process with small code changes and small iterations. And Vertex AI training is a managed cloud environment that spins up VMs, loads dependencies, brings in data, executes codes, and tears down the cluster for you. Uh, which, if you're trying to do a very small change and test it, is a lot of overhead. So now, using the new local mode, to iterate and test your work locally on a small sample data set without waiting for the full cycle 
uh, cloud thing. This is a friendly and fast way to debug your code. And by leveraging the environment consistency of containers, local mode lets users submit their code as local run with expectation it will be processed in a similar environment to the one executing a cloud job. And then the auto-container packaging is available to you once you get your code right uh, to make it ready for deployment at cloud-scale auto-container packaging uh, simplifies the job submission process. Previously, you had to do three steps to build the container, to push the container, create a cloud vertex AI job, and now you can do it all with a single uh, step command, which, I mean, three to one is not not super big optimization, but I guess MLAI people just want to go fast. I mean, I do, I, I, I equate, you know, training a new model a lot like debugging a CICD pipeline or, or um, you know, some sort of, you know, code that you're using for your infrastructure it it is very problematic to to uh test that you know because you have to if you're debugging a cicd pipeline right you're committing your code letting the pipeline run waiting for that to get through whatever process before it dies training a model is very similar right you you train the model you run it and then you get no data back <laughs> so it's like um so i think this is a huge enablement for those teams so i like it quite a lot Especially when you're learning, like you're trying to not sound like such an idiot on the internet about AI. <laughs> These things are very handy. Definitely. All right, we're going epic again, guys. Google Cloud is announcing the <laughs> availability of C2D powered by the third gen AMD Epic processors. Z2D instance take advantage of the processor architecture from the latest generation AMD Epic CPU, including the Zen 3 core, and C2D supports persistent disks, advanced networking, compact placement policies, and soon-to-follow sole tenant modes. Uh, instances are configured up to 112 vCPUs, or 56 cores, and 896 gigabytes of memory, and 3 terabytes of local SSD. Uh, they do not support confidential computing today, but they do say it is coming very soon, and so you can move all of your uh, C1Ds to confidential computing soon with the C2D. So there you go, Epic, once again. So I, I didn't see which one announced theirs first. I don't know if AWS was first, and then Google announced theirs, or they simultaneously dropped. I I was sort of curious who beat who, but I, I just couldn't work it out in time. Have to work with the kind folks at Vantage and build our like instance decoder ring to that, you know, so we could compare the instance types across all the major cloud hypervisors so we can know which ones are the same ones. <laughs> Uh, it's actually very <laughs> difficult to do that, and I will tell you why. So Google has standard shapes, and standard shapes in Google are fine. You can do just like you do with EC2 instances, but Google allows custom shapes. And so you can specify the exact number of CPUs you want, and then you can, you know, based on the number of CPUs you choose, you get a certain allocation of memory that you can allocate with just part of the shape. And then they also offer you the ability to extend, go into extended memory, which you can pay extra for. And so th what happens is you get actually three numbers have to be added together to get to the cost of an instance. So it's the cost of the, of the initial shape, the cost of the extended memory you allocated if you went over the baseline, and the OS license. And so it's not actually as easy to compare them as you would hope it would be because there's all these, these gotchas to it. I didn't think it was easy before you gave me all those details. Now it seems impossible. Challenge accepted. Right? We need yeah. the Strangler method for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say, though, that um, when AWS, uh, AWS announces general availability of an instance, I have never been unable to launch that instance to test it. And we often we often test these new things. Yeah. We often benchmark new processes for database workloads, or you know, Elasticsearch, or 
you know, it, pick a workload. I've never failed to get an instance type assigned, um, you know, in US West 2 or in Virginia, for example. And I can't say the same thing for workloads on GCP. I mean, I've run into edge cases with with Amazon where not in regions, but in specific AZs, I couldn't deploy like a newer instance type. Yeah. But that's, you know, and that's usually lasts about, you know, three days. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah, we definitely, definitely run into that. Uh, I mean, I've seen it on AWS with like really finicky, like I want GPUs or I want like really high-end servers. Like those are typically where you, you run into that problem on AWS. And it does happen occasionally, uh, more in the other regions than in the main big US ones and big Europe ones. But um, I, I've also seen it on GCP that they have made it not available when I needed it, uh, as well as on Azure. So it's, uh, you know, when that happens, you don't feel like it's very cloudy. <laughs> All of a sudden you realize, I'm back at the capacity planning. <laughs> now worry about these crazy things that you didn't have to worry about yeah. before. Well, literally, the, cl- the cloud is somebody else's computer today. It's just yeah, not mine. It's not mine today. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> nice. All right. Let's move to uh, Redmond with Azure. Uh, so if you are a, a Red Hat customer or a SUSE Enterprise Linux customer, uh, there is a new preview available for you uh, to bring your subscription to the Azure cloud with the Azure Hybrid Benefit and Red Hat Ansible Automation Platform on Azure. Uh, this is for all those organizations trying to get off their on-premise legacy uh, SUS or Red Hat Enterprise uh, models with your BYOS virtual machines. Uh, and then also the Ansible automation platform, uh, which we previously talked about on the show, they have now expanded the availability. So if you were denied entry to the beta initially, you can now try again and maybe you'll get in this time. So good luck to all of you out there trying to get Ansible to work on top of Azure. I don't envy any of you. <laughs> So I'm assuming that this this service kind of replaces the the, the similar service that AWS have, which is the, the licensing service, which kind of you sort of load in your subscriptions and then they handle tracking instances as they start up and and go away again, so that you can you can report on your usage of those those things for for billing. And I'm and I'm pretty sure you can actually uh, be billed directly by Azure for these licenses Correct. through this service. Yeah, as well. so so you can. Go to Azure. You can say, "I want a Red Hat Enterprise Linux box." And if you don't have a, you didn't have a, you didn't bring your own subscription, uh, which is different than bring your own license. We learned earlier today. Uh, then yes, you can just turn that up, and you just pay an extra premium on your 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 hour cost for that SUS Linux or for that Red Hat license. But you know, for a lot of organizations, they have already have very large uh, enterprise deals, or they've negotiated better pricing they're getting from Azure, and so they want to bring their own subscription in those use cases. So it, it does it handles both of those scenarios. Um, which is nice if you have some legacy Red Hat or you're in the middle of a migration and you have subscriptions for a few more years and you're like, I want to I wanna reuse the, the spending I already spent. Yeah, we all, we all missed the, the BYOA announcement today, which is to bring your own acronym. <laughs> so we all had to go look that yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. BYOS, I was like, what? <laughs> I had to go double take on that. Well, the uh, Mark Resinich uh, blog is back with another article in Advancing the Reliability of uh, Azure. Uh, this one is co-authored by Gaurav Jagtiani. Uh, and this time they talk about Flash, as it's known internally, a collection of efforts across Azure engineering that aims to evolve Azure's VM availability monitoring ecosystem into a centralized, holistic, and intelligible solution customers can rely on to meet their specific observability needs. Uh, they're excited to announce the completion of the project's first two milestones, the preview of VM availability data in Azure Resource Graph, and the private preview of VM availability metric in Azure Monitor. 
Uh, Project Flash derives its name from their commitment to building robust and rapid ways to monitor virtual machine availability as comprehensively as possible, a key prerequisite for efficient application performance. And the features of Flash include consuming accurate and actual data on VM availability disruptions, for example, VM reboots and restarts, application freezes due to network driver updates, and 30-second host OS updates, along with precise failure details, for example, platform versus user-initiated reboot versus freeze, planned versus unplanned, etc., uh, analyzing and alerting on trends in availability for quick debugging and month-over-month reporting. Uh, periodically monitor data at scale and build custom dashboards to stay updated on the latest availability states of all resources. Receive automated root cause analysis detailing impact of VMs, downtime, caused, and duration, consequent fixes, and similar, all to enable targeted investigations and post-mortem analysis. Receive instantaneous notifications on critical changes in your VM and dynamically tailor and automate platform recovery policies. Uh, Azure is reaching, of course, the first project flash milestone with the preview release of VM availability data to address the range of jobs really needs. And all I can think about when I read through this is, this is really great, and I'm super glad you're doing this, and this really benefits Azure. And if our customer has to worry about all these things, I'm sort of concerned, because that's not very cloudy. <laughs> Every time you said flash, I kept thinking, uh. Oh, I, I was, thank God, because I was like, oh, am I old? I don't know if anyone's going to get yeah. that reference. No, we're totally showing our right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, link to Flash Gordon and the Queen song in the, yeah. in the show notes. <laughs> I uh, I was thinking of the MCU Flash a little bit because I've been watching, uh, you know, recent Marvel movies uh, that have Flash, Flash. Yeah. or not. I think it's mm-hmm. actually DCU has Flash. I already got the reverse. DCU. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not enough of a nerd. DC. Yeah, DC. So he's in the he's in the Batman movie, right? And the terrible mm-hmm. Batman versus Superman, uh, all those things. Uh, well, let's move on to uh, Oracle, uh, who is joining the FinOps Foundation, which, uh, you know, it's a great organization to uh, join. This apparently means that Oracle in the future hopes that you will just as mad at your OCI bill as your AWS bill, uh, and that's why they've joined it. The foundation, of course, is dedicated to advancing people uh, who practice the discipline of cloud financial management through best practices, education, and standards. And there's a quote here from J.R. Stormont, who I've met, and we did a video together at reInvent you can find at the FinOps group. Uh, we're thrilled to welcome Oracle as a member of the FinOps Foundation. The practitioner community greatly benefits as major cloud providers like Oracle align their product offerings to FinOps principles and standards to enable organizations to get the maximum value out of their cloud investments. Uh, so there you go. Oracle someday is going to uh, you know have big bills that you're going to be mad about, or they're going to sue you for the bill that you didn't. You know that yeah. they already should know what you spent. But yeah, it's Oracle's got to keep those lawyers going. Somebody at Oracle said, "Not none of our customers are complaining how expensive it is. It's expensive it is to, to run here, so they're going to join the FinOps Foundation and raise their price to fifty percent." Perfect. <laughs> All right, uh, Peter's not here for the lightning round, so we're uh, we're just going to go around Robin on this again, I think. Uh, so, uh, first, running faster motorsport simulations on Oracle Cloud infrastructure, like every motorsport, or or you know. Like- <laughs> this is this is this is just a find this press release very suspect. Yeah, this is just the you know them mapping how fast the people run away from their lawyers when they get the lawsuits. <laughs> or maybe it's the the truck that drives around that represents their their regions. AWS Ops Works for configuration management now supports a new version of Chef Automate. People still use Chef. <laughs> people still use Opsworks. <laughs> I thought, I thought it died. <laughs> so, so, so weird. Okay. Just the community. Just the community. Oh. Amazon Connect launches Amazon CloudWatch support for chat metrics. Because every uh, you know every chat agent who works in support wants to be monitored by CloudWatch. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. This agent spent 59 minutes in the bathroom today. <laughs> to be fair, if, if I can get a metric for how many times I swear in a public chat room, though, I want that in CloudWatch. I mean, <laughs> I can make it happen. <laughs> we we could have made that. I, I was really thinking about it. It's kind of funny. So, like, if I use Connect for my call center to monitor my chat agents and my call agents, and then that gets logged to CloudWatch, and then CloudWatch has a trigger to Slack, it's just chat all the way around. <laughs> so, you can do all kinds of fun stuff. You've got just a whole bunch of support talking to itself. Yep. Amazon Neptune now supports up to 128 terabytes of storage per cluster because uh, apparently GraphQL uses a lot of data. 128 terabytes, and I still don't know how to use it. Cool. I got nothing, honestly. The only thing I know about Neptune is that it's cold, blue, and windy. <laughs> Those are all true. <laughs> how about the next story, though, that is with your name? Absolutely. Amazon Neptune ML now supports custom models and Sparkle query language. So you said it was blue, but does it sparkle blue, or is it just blue? Mm-hmm. In, insert um, the magic name here. <laughs> yeah. Magic. Twinkling glitter sound, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so sparkly. Yeah. If I didn't want to use, you know, Neptune before, like, you know, now that I can use Sparkle, something called Sparkle, I'm totally using that. That's amazing. But you had to learn ML first to use it. So that's that's the fun part. So the mm. so you really will learn the magic that you then get sparkles with. That's the beauty of machine learning, is that the machines did all the learning. Why do I have to do so much learning? It is an oxymoron, isn't it? Yeah. So much work to make machines learn. Mm-hmm. It's like management all over, though. It's <laughs> <laughs> a different type of management. People versus machines. You choose what you want to manage and then choose your career wisely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, team. It's just a, it's just a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> AWS Organizations Console now lets users centrally manage alternate contacts on AWS accounts. So we can spam twice as many people. Yeah, call somebody the, else, not me. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of speaking of Amazon emailing people yeah. and accounts, I forgot in follow up that uh, Amazon turned off uh, EKS uh, guard duty monitoring. You know, so they went from mm. we turned it on, we're going to bill you to we turned it on, we're not going to bill you to we just turned it off because we've completely backtracked yeah. on this because you guys are getting the pitchforks yeah. out. So just a small little side note there. Please stop adding us. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter was very angry. Very angry. <laughs> You know, unrelated to AWS specifically, but I, I had to call Amazon, um, the, the retail side of Amazon, yesterday. I received a package in the mail, but uh, it was it was like, it arrived in the mailbox, so it was something small, didn't know what it was, it was addressed to me, wasn't something I ordered, and I thought, wow, this is going to be hard to try and figure out what it was. And I was on, um, I started a chat, it was a bit, bit clunky to try and figure out how to chat about something that I hadn't ordered from my own account, but I figured it out in the end. And so within... Eight minutes of chatting with an agent, I had found out um, who it came from, what it was, and they'd reordered it and rushed the delivery because when I when I told them it was for my son's birthday, it was a gift from somebody. They um, they gave me uh, next day shipping on it for free, even though the, the person who originally sent it didn't have Prime. So I was super impressed with their customer service focus, and I can see that it spreads across both orgs. And, and I'm sure that that success is now a CloudWatch metric and being used, hopefully, to give that nice support agent a raise. Awesome. Yeah, you, you never know. Yeah. Never so know. so I, I guess I missed a part. So you received a package that I assume was damaged, which is why you needed to contact Amazon 
Empty. Completely oh, empty. empty. It was, okay. It was, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It was one of their one of their uh, blue and white envelopes, and there was no adhesive on the thing, and the label was printed literally where it would have been folded over anyway. And so clearly something had gone wrong. You know, somebody was having their that was like their fourteenth day of the notice period or something, <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't give uh, a hoot. That day, uh, clearly that would have, you I know, mean, and the postman delivered it as well. Like, why would you deliver an empty envelope that's, that's been that's clearly open? But whatever, <laughs> you know, you get paid for what you do. That's fine. Yeah, AWS Vision is <laughs> working really well. I see. That's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not not available in, in our region oh, yet. Got it. So. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, things coming up. Uh, one thing I want to mention today is because is uh, SQL Server and Azure SQL Conference uh, April fifth through seventh. Uh, so if you're interested in that, but the rest of it uh, you can see in the show notes. But nothing's close enough that I need to warn you all that it's imminent but uh you know have a great uh great rest of your week in the cloud you guys yeah you too actually i want to mention one thing really quick for the first time just because i didn't put it in the list that um people should check out the aws twitch stream there are often office hours sessions with the network team or with the compute team or various other teams and they have a, an open forum for chat and you can pick the brains and they won't talk about things under NDA, obviously in a public forum, but they'll, they'll give you pointers for things you can go back and talk to your account reps about and um, lots of best practices and lots of pointers towards training materials and, and get started guys and stuff like that. It's been pretty interesting recently. Yeah. It's kind of this unknown secret for that, people. That'll save me the embarrassment of asking for a feature they delivered six months ago. I can do it anonymously <laughs> <laughs> online now. <laughs> Excellent. You just asked me because yeah. I remember almost all of like, oh, I think they announced something about that and then go find it in the show notes. The show notes have become like our own archive of like Amazon knowledge and Google and Asia. Like, yeah, I can tell you if they announced it and when because I have it in the notes. Um, so you just ask me. But, but no, the Pretty Twitch awesome. stream is, is yeah. really an un an underutilized asset that Amazon has for people that I, you know, people who know about it, like Jonathan and myself and Ryan, I, you know, I think we, you know, I, I know I check it out at least once or twice a week. I'll pop it on uh, to see what the, what's going on. And I've stayed for hours a couple of times with a really interesting topic or they're doing something I hadn't seen before. Uh, but, you know, for those of you who have never seen it, it is it is a really great resource um, that I recommend. Uh, they are not funnier than us, I don't think. They try, but they're not funnier than us. <laughs> they're not. And, and sometimes it's kind of like QVC for web services. Yeah. But, <laughs> but not, not, not the, it's, it's normally managed you know, very well. It's more of the, the, like the, the Mike Rowe version of QVC, if you've ever seen those YouTube videos. Like it's, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not really great QVC, but it's like... We're pretending to be QVC. Yeah, it's it's, it's fun. <laughs> it, it's a good time, yeah. regardless. I would recommend checking it out, and they have content almost all the time, so around the globe. All right, have a good evening, guys. You too. Bye, everybody. And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions. Mm-hmm.